This week on the Tech on Tap podcast, we discuss the role of data science in healthcare with Esteban Rubens of NetApp and Andrew Malino of E+. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. NetApp. I love this company. Zipor. Zipor. I love NetApp because it's so funny. Hello and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. My name is Justin Parisi. I'm here in the basement of my house and we are going to talk about some healthcare with NetApp. Uh, and to do that, we brought along someone from E+. So Andrew Malinow is here. Andrew, what do you do and how do we reach you? Uh, so I lead the AI practice at E+. I'm a data scientist um, and have been uh, in the field for about 15 years. I can be reached at andrew.malino, M-A-L-I-N as in Nancy, O-W, at eplus.com. Or you can uh, also reach out to AI at eplus.com. So Andrew, uh, what is E-plus? Like, what do they do and you know, what sort of things do you do with them? So E-plus is a value-added reseller, and historically, we've focused on uh, reselling OEM hardware, switches, servers. Um, in the last two years or so, we've begun to shift towards a more consultative, business-focused services model. Um, and I run our AI practice, which has been focusing on integrating AI algorithms into OEM hardware and shipping uh, the integrated appliance um, to those who don't typically have capacity for uh, building AI applications themselves. Excellent. Also uh, with us today, Esteban Rubens from NetApp. So Esteban, what do you do and how do we reach you? Hi, it's great to be here. Thank you. Uh, I'm part of the healthcare team at NetApp. Uh, you can reach me on email at estebanr at netapp.com. That's E-S-T-E-B-A-N-R at netapp.com or LinkedIn. I'm, I do a lot on LinkedIn as well. And within the NetApp uh, healthcare practice, I handle AI, right? Surprise, surprise, I'm on here with Andrew. So all things AI apply to healthcare. Absolutely. So before we get into that, um, you know, one of the things about healthcare is staying healthy and, and keeping fit. Um, and during this whole pandemic, we are all finding it challenging to uh, to do that. We are, we're locked down. We're not really able to go do our normal gym routines. So, uh, Andrew, how are you staying fit? Are you just like mailing it in and eating a bag of chips the entire time? <laughs> I've actually lost uh, 15 pounds uh, since this uh, stay-at-home coronavirus crisis. Wow. 15 pounds. I'm, I'm fortunate enough to live on a small farm in Connecticut, and uh, I've integrated uh, walking laps around my field and have more time to chase my ducks and chickens and kids. And uh, I also uh, bought some Bowflex dumbbells, and I'm finding that they're pretty... Uh, pretty versatile. So I'm, I'm actually moving a lot more than, uh, than before when I used to go to the Y and sit in the sauna for an hour and a half, which as it turns out is, um, it's not great exercise. <laughs> so Bowflex dumbbells, aren't, isn't Bowflex where they have those flexible rubber things or the dumbbells just free weights? 
No, the dumbbells, they, uh, they go up to um, 52 and a half pounds and they have a little selector on the outside so you can, um, you can make them as heavy as 52 and a half pounds or as light as uh, 10 pounds, I think, and then uh, any increments of five pounds. So you can do a lot of uh, different, different exercises at different, uh, different weights. Excellent. That's pretty good. So uh, Esteban, what about you? What are you doing? Uh, I just built myself a little basement gym so I can keep up with my powerlifting training. So I'm really fortunate that I was able to to get the stuff. And so, yeah, the, the big three, squat, bench, and deadlift. That's good. I've, I'm doing nothing. I, I should be doing stuff. Every, every day I'm thinking, man, I should, I should be doing something. <laughs> and then it just like melts away like a mist. <laughs> So, um, I need to, I need to do that. I'm going to eventually do that. I used to play basketball pretty much every day before all this. So now it's like, I'm kind of like, I can't really play basketball. I've got this like little six foot hoop in the backyard for my kid, but that's not uh, really doing it. No. How about, how about a Kleenex and a garbage can? <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, that's a thought. <laughs> it's definitely a thought. <laughs> all right. Um, so we're here to talk about, um, basically some things about healthcare and AI, um, so before we, you know, so Andrew, how did you get into healthcare and AI? You know, you have a degree in, in psychology. I have a degree in English and I'm in tech. So I'm always curious to hear about how people who don't have tech degrees end up in tech. Uh, it's a great question. So um, I earned my uh, PhD almost 20 years ago um, in applied cognitive psychology. And for my dissertation, I developed some web-based software to teach math to learning disabled students. So right from the onset, I've always been interested in the intersection between human cognition and computing. Uh, and my first, uh, my first job out of grad school, I was at a think tank in Massachusetts focusing on math research. And um, it was a very difficult grant, uh, grant environment at that time. And my position was funded by uh, successful grant writing. And uh, I actually was laid off after um, not securing a grant, and uh, that sort of kicked off an interesting career that took me through the Harvard Medical School, um, doing research with physicians to um, NIBR, which is Novartis's uh, Institute for Biomedical Research. Uh, and I also um, spent some time at a boutique consulting company that designed uh, patient-reported outcome instruments for clinical trials. So there's always been um, the thread of interest in doing pro-social um, work, whether it's been in education or in healthcare in some way. Um, and and uh, you know, most recently before joining E Plus, I built a, um, a social media um, pharmacovigilance platform that would scrape and analyze posts on Reddit for signs of. Um, adverse events, and alternatively off-label, unanticipated benefits of medications that were being discussed in those forums. Wow, so you're doing quite a bit with that psychology degree. (laughs) 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 I mean, honestly, like, it it applies. Like, you know, similar to with my English degree, I have to use that in everyday communication with people, and it pays off. So with a psychology degree, it kind of helps you look at things from a different way than somebody who might have had a computer science degree might have looked at it. 
I, I agree with that. I think that there's um, there's uh, an articulation of the human experience now with social media and um, and a growing interest in understanding how people are interacting with each other that does make um, you know psychology very very relevant. I'm also oriented and um, driven by understanding people, and you know people are at the center of uh, most industries, either as customers or as physicians or as patients, um, so it, it, it has been uh, it has been helpful and uh, extremely relevant. Which is interesting because I mean you've gone from a career that's mostly focused on the people, and now you're going into a, a career that's mostly focused on the pro- the product of the people, the data. So, what type of things do you do in your day to day as a data scientist? Well, so currently um, I'm in the process of building um, building an appliance. It's a series of predictive algorithms that will help hospitals identify those at high risk for being readmitted within 30 days. So um, that work has involved a lot of um, Python coding and working with unstructured EMR data to create structured features that can then be fed into uh, an automated machine learning pipeline to provide uh, additional clarity and visibility into who's likely to be readmitted. Okay. So as far as um, healthcare and AI goes, I mean, we talked about this pretty extensively in previous podcasts, but Esteban, what sort of things do you see in the healthcare field that tie into AI and machine learning and and how is it becoming more prevalent today? It's a a lot of what Andrew just said. It's integrating these really sophisticated algorithms, which is all they are, right? People talk about AI and it has some sort of mysterious ring to it. It's just a bunch of mathematical techniques. You know, it's using neural networks and, you know, special kinds of neural networks so that you can get better insights. So you can actually use the data for something that will help patients or help the physicians. And so what we know is that people in healthcare are too busy already. They're getting burnt out and there's no time to go and tell them, hey, there's this great new tool. Just go use this and everything will be better. We have to get stuff integrated into what they call the existing clinical workflow. So they're used to using the EHR, right? The electronic health record, or in radiology, they use something called PACS or you know any number of other applications. The important thing is taking all this very exciting research that has really you know shows great results and making it usable so that people don't have to go outside of what they're already doing and you know essentially waste time. Uh, rather, the integration is key. So bringing it, we we already know that AI is extremely useful to do many, many things, helping with uh, automated diagnosis uh, in in imaging areas, in genomics, uh, helping with uh, drug discovery, helping with uh, even clinic, I mean, administrative uh, tasks in hospitals like nurse staffing and, you know, preventing, as Andrew was saying, readmissions or early detection of sepsis. There's so many areas in which we already know that AI can help. The important thing is what Andrew's doing with E+, bringing that to the field, basically, bringing it to the hospitals and other organizations that maybe don't have the luxury of having somebody like Andrew, who's a data scientist. So we know that basically everybody in healthcare has IT people, 
most don't have data scientists. So that's where the, the I think the greatest good can come is bringing AI to, if you will, the masses, you know, the people who don't otherwise wouldn't have access to it. So, Andrew, E+, how did they get into AI? Like, how did they get into the healthcare market? Well, so they got into AI by um, hiring me. <laughs> um, there was uh, a lot of interest and there were some preliminary foundational pieces that were put into place, which uh, included the creation of my position. Uh, and I came with a, um, a strong background in healthcare and development and uh, passion for healthcare. And I've really had the luxury and latitude to, um, to, sh to, to build a, a roadmap that focuses on enabling uh, those who don't have the, the resources, uh, as Esteban mentioned, you know, that we really we're operating in a bit of an AI oligarchy. So there are companies like Google and Facebook and NVIDIA that are creating all sorts of goodness uh, from an AI perspective. They're open sourcing deep learning frameworks and um, NVIDIA's uh, revolutionized the field with, with uh, GPU accelerated computing. And they've made these tools available for people to use. And, uh, you know, it is all math at the end of the day, but it's it's um, it's not easy to, to work with the algorithms. And then there's an even bigger lift that's required to actually integrate a model into um, a productionalized workflow that actually is impacting the business. So what we see is even large medical centers and university-affiliated hospitals will have teams of data scientists. They're facile with the tools, um, but integrating the output of their work back into an EMR system uh, is difficult or to re-engineer the business processes to take advantage of model output is not easy. And our hope is that um, by building everything into the hardware, um, we will be able to provide the value of AI out of the box because we've baked it into the box. Right? So these small community hospitals, they don't have software engineers or data scientists. They may not even know where to start if they had the budget, um, but they do have IT budgets. And everyone is up for a server refresh on a fairly regular basis. And one of our value propositions um, in addition to providing, you know, the value of AI out of the box is also, you know, if you're buying new servers, you may as well buy one that is able to immediately impact your, your, your business. So when you have these healthcare conversations about, you know, what sort of products to get, who are you speaking to mostly? Is it, you know, C-level people? Or is it the actual data scientists? And if, you know, how do you approach those conversations? Right. So for community hospitals, it's typically um, an IT person because that is the foundation of the relationships that E-plus currently has. Is, uh, we're selling hardware to um, organizations and the procurement process typically is managed by someone in IT. Um, for the larger um, medical centers and universities, we typically speak with um, either the head of a research lab. Uh, I have a call tomorrow with uh, the head of an innovation center at a large uh, healthcare system in New Jersey. Um, sometimes it's C-level. Uh, um, in fact, the, the opportunity tomorrow with the head of the innovation center started with 
the head of the healthcare system. And, and he sort of provided a warm intro to the head of his innovation center. So it really depends on the size of the, uh, of the organization. So do you ever find yourself talking to the data scientists themselves? And if you do, I mean, how do you approach those conversations? I'm sure they don't really care about a lot of the things that an IT guy would care about. Yeah, so we actually have, um, those are always fun conversations because I frequently am um, able to uh, to learn a lot in terms of, um, you know, the workflows that they're operating within, some of the tools that they're using. Um, for organizations that have data scientists, frankly, we have a, a, a different offering. Um, we have, um, I would call it a best-in-class uh, healthcare AI accelerator platform that is uh, that was developed by one of our partners. And so if we're talking to a data scientist, um, it's understanding what their workflow is currently like, where their pain points are. It's typically either wrangling with data or having to navigate multiple um, environments to get their work done. They're working in a Jupyter notebook. Um, but their, you know, their data is sitting somewhere and they have to VPN to get access to it. Um, for those folks, we have, a, we have a single platform that enables uh, them to source and ingest data, do all the ETL, um, train and test and evaluate models, deploy them in a secure way, and then monitor their performance in an ongoing manner, all from one UI. Um, so, so that's a... a, a Definitely a, a different audience and a different conversation and a different offering. So Esteban, how about you? I mean, how are you approaching these conversations, uh, you know, depending on who you're talking to? And like, do you have to bring in extra people or you know, how do you handle that? Uh, the most important thing is to go to the people who actually care about what you're talking about. So in this case, we like to focus on the healthcare side, on the clinical people. So IT obviously is a part of it. They're a stakeholder, if you will, but the clinical people are the people who are going to benefit from it. So we like to go talk to maybe the CMIO, you know, the, the chief medical information officer or the CIO or the department heads in the different departments that care about this, like radiology or pathology or uh, genomics or whatever the case may be. And then many times there's this emerging, maybe not even emerging anymore, uh, specialty of informatics, right? Clinical informatics in, in medicine. So many healthcare organizations have informaticians. And so those are the people really that are great to talk to because it's finding people right at the intersection of the clinical side and the technology side. So they get the benefit of what AI can bring to the table, the value that's right now locked in the data that they have from their patients, but also they have a very, very uh, attuned ear to the needs of the clinicians uh, and realize what the challenges are bringing that technology to bear for patient care and, and you know, the, the of helping the uh, clinicians in the organization. So that's the ideal, right? If we can't find that, then of course, we talk to IT people, they are a little more focused on what we call the speeds and feeds, right? Uh, that's interesting because, yeah, NetApp has a lot to say about that. You know, everything that we have is awesome in terms of performance and low latency. So we, we can talk about all that for hours, you know, our data fabric, how to move data seamlessly, from the edge devices to the core data center to the cloud, I mean, all of that, right? There's 100% we can do that, but it, it 
it's always better when we can bring the actual application uh, to, you know, to the discussion. So um, ideally, we focus on the people who are in that intersection. Excellent. So, um, Andrew, could you kind of give us a brief overview of deep learning and how you use it for labeling data against results? Sure. So um, one of the uh, one of the biggest value propositions of um, deep learning is that there is um, there's an automated creation of features, the inner workings of the model that are um, that are used to create model output. So, if, for example, um, I knew with ninety nine percent uh, accuracy that it was going to rain tomorrow, I would bring an umbrella, right? I don't need to know why the model is so um, accurate. It's just, um, it's actionable to just know that it's right. Bring an umbrella, this model is 99% uh, accurate. That's a very, um, it's very powerful, but frequently um, machine learning provides um, more actionable insights. For example, if we had a model that was 99% accurate, that someone was going to be readmitted within 30 days and that that uh, readmission would not be um, covered by a payer and the hospital would lose money. And it's also a metric that the person was not necessarily treated properly during their initial stay, that's not actionable, right? How, how would you, what would you go back to a clinician and, uh, and tell them to do to prevent that readmission from happening? So we use um, deep learning primarily as an intermediate uh, phase in, in our workflows. Um, for example, we will um, we'll create a word-to-vec model of the unstructured field in an EMR record and then use something called latent Dirichlet analysis, LDA for short, to surface um, topics that wouldn't necessarily be understood from a top-down business perspective, things that text in across records that seem to indicate a pattern that something's going on. We then take those topics and turn them into structured features, right? A binary value, the topic is either present or not present in new records, and we assign it to zero or one. And then that feature, along with all of the other structured data that comes along in the EMR, is fed into a machine learning um, algorithm where we're able to extract a feature importance to then assign um, a value to a feature that we've created and know is meaningful. But, but the, the way that the feature is created is black box because we're using deep learning to create it. Cool. So, I, Sorry, I, I just want to interject something. So Andrew, would you say then it's accurate to say that this is essentially software writing itself? Because I've heard that around where there's like the data has some features, some truth to it. And by using deep learning, you know, instead of writing software with, you know, if-then statements and rules, this is just like unleashing the data on the neural network, and the neural network essentially creates the software. It, it, to us, yes. I mean, I would agree with that. Um, I wouldn't say it writes the software, but I do. I would say that it creates the um, it creates the edges, right? It's um, it's like you're putting in um, raw material. And you're using deep learning in a in a slightly curated 
way to orchestrate meaningful edges from that raw data. Um, so there's a lot of work and a lot of coding that goes into stringing things together and uh, you need to, you know, set up your, your network and um, refine it and iterate. But um, you are essentially letting the algorithm do the hard, hard math. Um, and to surface these unanticipated important features. So Andrew, when we generate healthcare data for machine learning use cases, generally what is, what's done is it's put into a data lake, right? So a giant repository of data, whether it's millions of files or a bunch of large files. What are you doing to help your customers manage that data? What's the data management philosophy and strategy that you're pushing? I, like every other data scientist uh, that you may speak to, will always um, will always put data above any algorithm in terms of importance in in an analysis in getting actionable insights. Um, the more data you're able to use, um, the more accurate your models will be. I would take a simple model with tons of data over the most sophisticated um, bleeding edge algorithm and sparse data. Um, so I would say one of the key features I, I think that we're going to see in upcoming years is movement from the cloud to on-prem because it's, it's far too expensive to run production level AI algorithms in, in the cloud effectively because you want to use as much data as possible. Um, so, so the idea that, frankly, that, that NetApp supports and facilitates easily moving uh, ingress and egress from the cloud back to on-prem, I'm all in on uh, on-prem computing. I think that as the uh, collective um, industry gets more mature. We will see uh, a movement from doing experiments in the cloud, which is how AI started, right? Amazon and Google and Microsoft made it really easy. They provided these turnkey GPU accelerated environments, throw some data up real quick. It sort of created the shadow IT uh, scenario where you had data scientists not wanting to suffer through a long and expensive internal procurement process to get the kind of environment they needed to do their work. They would just pay a monthly subscription and use AWS or Azure. Um, but one of the sacrifices that's made is the number of times you run a model because you're, um, you're paying for that compute time and you're paying for the storage. So what do you see? You see small scale experiments and then um, typically the, the deployed model is run on-prem where all of your data is. But uh, you really should be training with as much data as possible um, because the, the inferencing is going to be that much more accurate if you've used a lot of data. And the future, I think that's just going to be far more cost-effective on-prem. So you're actually advocating for an on-prem strategy as opposed to cloud, which is interesting because, I mean, everybody's pushing the cloud pretty hard, but you kind of illustrate that the cloud is right for some things, but not for everything. And then, you know, there's here's an example of something where you, maybe you want to do things on, on site. Yeah, no, I mean, it's nimble, right? So I, I get it. I understand the cloud value proposition. I understand um, the appeal of having someone else manage that 
environment. Um, but just from a from a workflow perspective, um, and from a um, from a value and integrity of the data science work that we do, again, it's um, I don't want to worry about like how much data is in an S3 bucket. Uh, I just want to use everything that's available. I mean, I don't even think I believe in cold storage, right? If you have the, if you have the data, use it. Um, and and I'm constantly trying to encourage people to use as much data as possible, even when. Um, building and training things like what's the point of running something on, uh, you know, a thousand records when you've got a million available to you? Um, you know, even a train test split, you're always training on like 80% of the data and reserving 20% for, for testing. And I would much rather have that 80% be, uh, you know, millions of records, not, not hundreds of records. In your experience, um, where are you seeing the areas that healthcare can benefit the most from AI and, and deep learning? And what are some areas where it doesn't really make that much of a difference? Uh, I think um, I think all areas can benefit. I see the most um, I see the most potential uh, not not with different organizations with healthcare, but from a data source perspective, I see unstructured data being the primary fuel for AI that will deliver value from urgent care centers to community hospitals to the largest medical centers in the world. There's just, um, there's a plethora of insight that is just waiting to be harvested um, as well as, uh, you know, biotech and clinical trials. Um, there's just, there's unanticipated um, insights that we can surface using deep learning and other AI techniques that I think is going to revolutionize the entire industry. So I think everyone has something to gain. I think what we'll see is um, there's also a lot of um, focus on applying AI to um, to like CT scans and x-rays to um, semi-automate and provide decision support to pathologists and radiologists. Um, and I, I think that that has a much lower ceiling, frankly, than the unstructured data, which has a most limitless possibilities. I have a question for you. What what do you think about federated learning in this context? Do you think that's going to make it easy to share data so that you know people don't have to be moving PHI around that may, may be regulated? And a follow-up would be, in the pandemic era, it looks like maybe some of those restrictions are being relaxed so people can collaborate more. Do you think that's going to be a benefit for, for data science that will remain in healthcare? Well, so I see federated learning as um, an innovation to address a broken uh, a broken system. Frankly, right, where um, the the power of the data is in aggregate. It's not people using a model that was trained on someone else's data, and now it's available for for my use with my data. The the power comes from aggregating, um, you know, anonymized data sets from various places. So, um, but unfortunately with, uh, you know, a lot of hospitals are trying to commoditize their data. Um, I recently 
um, had an opportunity to talk about our uh, using our appliance uh, with with uh, this particular organization, and and they wanted um, they wanted to see if we'd be interested in purchasing their data, and. Um, Frankly, I was um, it, it was uh, an incendiary <laughs> uh, experience for me. Yeah, I was very imagine. professional in my messaging, but it's um, you know the the data is yes, the data is valuable, the data scientists, but it is more valuable to the hospitals whose constituents are creating that data. Um, my position was, don't you want your population to be healthier? Don't you want your population to benefit from the algorithms that we are saying will allow you to provide better care? You know, and, uh, and so, so there is this recognition, and rightly so, that data is, uh, you know, data is gold, it's the new oil, whatever the cliche is that's been circulating now. But yes, data is that important. But we shouldn't lose sight of why it's important. And ultimately, it's important because there are insights then that can help an organization do better. And in this instance, it's hospitals providing better care. And um, so, so that data is, should be critically important not to sell, but to get value out of it so that you can provide better services to your community. So what, so do you what think- I would like to see is okay. a centralized database where everyone's um, everyone's uh, EMR record is de-identified and sits in a national uh, database where anyone can run algorithms and anyone can use that data. It's it's I'm, I think people are more should be more interested in huge volumes of aggregated, de-identified individual records than they should in anyone else's models that are being built. So do you think the driver for people selling data off is basically they're a little intimidated by what to do with it? It, They have all this stuff and they don't really know where to start. It's kind of like when you have a dirty room and you don't know how to start cleaning it. So you just kind of shove everything to one side of the room, and then later on you got to shove it to the other side of the room. So Yeah, it's the uninspired, low-hanging fruit, right? So every, um, every startup um, historically in the first wave of like the tech revolution, how do they, including Facebook, is how do you, how do you make money from some sort of innovative tech that you've built? It's make it really sticky, get people to use it and sell advertising. And it's um, it's uh, I abhor that model. I find it detestable and uninspiring. And I think that uh, folks who are looking to commoditize their data, uh, frankly, are unimaginative and are just looking for a quick win. And, you know, sometimes that quick win is based on edicts from the top, right? They're trying to to make money and they're telling you to do it and you don't really have a choice because you've got nothing currently to do with it. So now you want right. to try to just turn it around as fast and as it's possible. Simple. That's right. No, and it's simple. Hey, we're a hospital. We have tons of money. We're losing revenue. Um, you know, it's a shifting reimbursement landscape. It's complicated. Let's sell our data. What they should be thinking of is, you know, we don't get, um, we don't get, Paid if we're not meeting certain quality benchmarks, how can we use our data to increase the quality of our care so we're more profitable? Right? Uh, it's uh, you need to think a minute about how to do that, and it's uh, 
you know, and it takes focus and a sustained effort and orchestration of partners and internal resources to, to get there. But ultimately, that's um, if you think about the mission and mandate of, of healthcare organizations, it's to provide quality services and keep the population healthy and treat those that are sick effectively. Uh, and so that's where they should be focusing. But I understand why many of them are not. And honestly, I mean, there's a middle ground there, right? So, I mean, if you can lease out your data without losing control of it, it, it offers opportunities for other hospitals to learn from things that you've learned, making the healthcare system better as a whole, right? So instead of like just selling it outright, like just ha- you know provisioning it out to a, to another hospital so they can run analysis on these things and say, oh, this matches up to what we're seeing in our hospital, or this is much different than what we're seeing here, and you know this drug combination doesn't work the way that, the same way. Let's kind of look dig into that deeper. Agree completely. I mean, I think that's a that's a very reasonable, optimistic um, position, and one that I would love to see happen. And and maybe it is happening already. I mean, uh, you know, at least at the university, um, you know, medical center level. And there you get into a, another dynamic, and that is a lot of the research that goes on there. You know, publications and uh, IP are the organizational currency that's exchanged. And so then you get a different kind of cloistering based on intellectual, uh, an intellectual oligarchy, if you will, where a principal investigator, um, you know, at one place doesn't want to share even with a colleague because they're both up for tenure and they both have, you know, publication requirements. So there's, there's always some sort of um, agenda that, that interjects itself. Um, and on some levels, it's more significant than others. And I, I do have hope for uh, the kind of middle ground that you're talking about um, occurring. I just, I think that it will require similarly inclined innovative leaders to, to you know, to drive their organizations towards that sort of collaborative uh, middle ground. So uh, as far as AI itself, and we talked about agendas, there's a, there's a large population of people that aren't getting the service from healthcare that they need. And whether it's because of, uh, demographics like you know race or gender or you know whether it's things like you live out in the country and you don't have access to certain services how is ai making that better how is it democratizing the way we do healthcare well currently i mean there's a huge opportunity because frankly they're not right um people in rural areas are not getting the same quality of care as someone who's um you know close to a metropolitan area that has uh you know large a number of large university affiliated organizations but um it certainly can so for example um coronavirus um, CT scan diagnostic software is um, is starting to emerge, and we're working with a company that has um, had their software deployed in Wuhan and now Malaysia, and uh, you know it's able to expedite um, and provide support to um, emergency room doctors internal medicine doctors uh, to provide essentially radiologist and pathologist level interpretation of images that will um, essentially expedite the treatment and triaging of coronavirus patients. So instead of having this huge backlog of scans that need to be interpreted by single radiologist, if you have, you know, 10 or 15 
physicians on the floor who aren't necessarily radiologists or pathologists or pulmonologists, um, you're able to provide in the form of deep learning algorithms their, their expertise basically by providing annotated scans back that highlight the areas that a radiologist or a pulmonologist would be looking at in a CT scan of the lungs. So that's just that's just one example. Um, but I think that, it, you know, the other the other opportunity or another opportunity is to optimize patient flow. And that's that's why we're focusing on readmissions. Right. So if you're able to um, if you know that if you keep someone in the hospital one day longer, will decrease their readmission rate by 75 percent. Um, you know, that readmission, if it's avoided, would be for, you know, could be a four day stay. And now it's an open bed for someone else in the community who needs it. So um, a lot of I think a lot of AI applications will focus on uh, decision and treatment support. Right. So never replacing a physician, but amplifying or augmenting their their clinical practices and then I think we're going to see a lot of um, applications on the um, patient flow optimizing uh, care um, application as well. So you've talked to a lot of people in health healthcare, Andrew. So what are you finding is most important when you're deploying the right infrastructure into AI? And why would you want to make sure you get that right the first time? You want to have um, access and ease of access to as much data as um, possible. You want to be able to um, store and easily retrieve as much of your um, data as as possible. And so um, to start with a data strategy from a, an infrastructure and storage perspective is the most fundamental piece to have in place. Um, so whether that means having the facility to move stuff quickly back and forth from the cloud to on-prem, if it's to be able to quickly scale out because you're anticipating a surge of patients and uh, will be needing to store a lot more data, you need, to, you need to begin with the end in mind. And for any AI-optimized organization, that end is using as much data all the time. Uh, and, and you need to have an infrastructure that will be able to accommodate that. So Esteban, what sort of things do Net, does NetApp have to offer healthcare organizations to in, in implement AI in their environments? Great thing about NetApp is that we have stuff for every stage of that data pipeline, right? We have compute with HCI. We have compute that can even have GPU in it. We have edge storage. We have core storage. We have, uh, of course, all flash. We have hybrid. We have file, block, object. We have cloud storage that works with all the major hyperscalers. We have storage grid that can be your own private cloud or can be part of a, a, a cloud that's you know half and half, so, so your, your private and public hybrid cloud. So it's really a, a good setup because then you don't have to be reinventing the wheel and putting things together from a variety of different providers. We can help people architect this uh, so that Everything makes sense. And as Andrew was saying, there's flexibility. You can 
respond to change quickly. You can burst up to cloud if you need to. You can have your core as well. You can make sure that you know, what, what I like to think of is the idea of having the right data in the right place at the right time at the right price. And that's key because other people may be able to say, yeah, you know, we can give you the data that you need, but that's not it, you know, because the, the realities of budgeting are extremely important. You can't decide that that somehow doesn't doesn't apply. So it's very important to have that flexibility. And one other thing that I like is that we're able to offer all of that in any kind of consumption model that customers may want, whether they want to use capital dollars to pay for them, or they want to have a mixed uh, approach, they just want to go operational. So you can have uh, on-prem equipment that you consume as a cloud server, you can have on-prem equipment that you buy outright, and it's uh, sort of a standard capital purchase. Any combination. So the the, the overriding uh, message that we have, if there's one thing that people want to take with them if they're listening to this, is that they can do whatever they want. We can help them with anything that they need in terms of their data management structure. We can help them pay for it in any way that they want. So there's complete flexibility to get them to be able to do the job that they want to do and essentially help their data scientists out or their IT organization out. All right, Esteban, Andrew, thanks so much for joining us today and giving us some insight into how healthcare is being driven by AI. So Andrew, again, if we wanted to reach you, how do we do that? You can send me an email at andrew.malino, M-A-L-I-N as in Nancy, O-W, at eplus.com, or you can uh, also reach out to AI at eplus.com. Are you the AI? Also, yeah. <laughs> we have a... <laughs> but this is brutal. <laughs> You're the AI. Andrew is the AI at E-plus. Yeah. On the spot touring test. That's good. That's we right. should do that with every guest. Are you a human, Andrew? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to hang up. You got enough, man? This is <laughs> brutal. It, it got uncomfortable, yeah. <laughs> It's all good. We'll, we'll, we'll make this sound fine. Although we, we tend to leave funny things in. So if you want to leave this in, we can totally do that. Yeah, well, I'm absolutely. Yeah. An, an included couple of outtakes where I uh, get my own email address wrong. Charming. Here's, a, a, uh, here's the uh, prototypical uh, mad scientist, data scientist who can't get his email right. <laughs> no, I think the best one is when you pointedly didn't answer the question about whether you're a human or not. Still waiting. I, he just said, I'm going to hang up. So <laughs> yeah, I know, right? how do we know he hasn't been programmed to say that? I know it's, this it's, whole interview was, uh, was an algorithm that I uh, spent all night last night writing. It's the uh, generative text side of AI. I basically like did a, a, a data lake of all my podcasts and knew what I was going to ask ahead of time. That's right, exactly. easy to do. Easy to do. That's right. All right. Uh, so Esteban, if we wanted to reach you, how do we do that? You can reach me at estebanr at netapp.com. That's E-S-T-E-B-A-N-R at netapp.com or LinkedIn. So um, I know you should pronounce it Esteban. Uh, it reminded me of that. Did you ever watch that show, uh, Cities of Gold, when you were a kid? No, no. I didn't grow up in the U.S., so that may be part of the problem. Oh, I think it was a French show or a Canadian show. But yeah, it was. You should you should check it out. There's a character with your name in it. So I mean, oh. you know, if you're 
And they, I just all I can remember them doing is like Esteban, Esteban. <laughs> I definitely have to check it out. Yeah, right? so um, it's yeah, it's interesting. It's it's more of a kid show. So if you get a kid, they might enjoy it, and then they can be like, oh look, his daddy's name. Yeah, I have teenagers. So I don't think they'll. Enjoy They're it. gonna hate it then. <laughs> Leave me alone, Dad. <laughs> exactly. You suck. All right, that music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast at netapp.com or send us a tweet at netapp. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or via TechOnTapPodcast.com. If you like the show today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tap podcast team, I'd like to thank Esteban Rubens and Andrew Malino for joining us today. As always, thanks for listening. Oh, yeah. Getting off on this. Oh, yeah. It is the 16th century. From all over Europe, great ships sail west to conquer the new world, the Americas. The men eager to seek their fortune, to find new adventures in new lands. They long to cross uncharted seas and discover unknown countries, to find secret gold on a mountain trail high in the Andes. They dream of following the path of the setting sun that leads to El Dorado and the mysterious cities of gold. Cities of